Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Pangeris, and as always, I'm really grateful to have you joining us. Before I introduce our guest, I want to point out that there is a zine that was created very lovingly by some of the participants of my uh, three-month program called Embodied Testimony. And the wisdom that was generated in that space, some of it was kind of uh, organized into a zine. And you can purchase that zine on my website, livingthisqueerbody.com. And all the proceeds go to the Loveland Foundation, which is an organization that raises funds for Black um, women, trans women, to access uh, really substantive and quality therapy, um, which everyone should have access to and um, unfortunately does not. So I really support that organization and all the proceeds will, will go to that. So pick up a copy. Um, through the website. And another opportunity you have is to purchase, and this is the the workshop um, recording or webinar recording that you can purchase on my website is quite related um, to the topics that we discuss in this particular podcast interview. Um, about several weeks ago, I ran a workshop with Mishi Poindexter, um, who is awesome. And we talked about pandemic fatigue from a disability justice perspective. It was a really generative conversation, lots of helpful questions asked and some answered. Um, And it's a really it's a really lovely conversation and you can purchase a recording on my website as well. So um, those are some ways to connect with me and the project of living in this queer body. I want to move on to introducing our podcast guest. Krista Couture is an award-winning performing and recording artist, filmmaker, nonfiction writer, and broadcaster. She is also mixed Cree and Scandinavian settler, queer, disabled, and a mom. Her seventh album, Safe Harbor, was released on Coax Records in 2020. As a writer and storyteller, she has been published in Room, Shameless, and Augur magazines, and on CBC in Canada. In 2018, her article and photos on disability and pregnancy went viral. She is the weekday afternoon host on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, Canada. And her debut memoir, How to Lose Everything, is out now with Douglas and McIntyre. And as part of this interview, I'm going to be giving away a copy of that memoir. Um, You can find out more on uh, my Instagram at livinginthisqueerbody.com. 
And yeah, I'll be doing a giveaway. So check that out. Um, we talk about a lot of things in this interview. Uh, Krista is lovely and open. And um, I just, I really appreciated her perspective. We talk about finding a messy middle of acceptance, um, the ever elusive messy middle, a childhood living with bone cancer, life as a queer amputee, grief as an access need, and much more. You can find out much more about her work at kristacouture.com. And we will have links in the show notes for everything you need to know about how to connect with Krista and the work that she puts out into the world. Thanks for listening and I'll see you soon. Krista, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. We were, we actually had to reschedule in part because I got my second vaccination, which is a great thing. And we were just talking about how great it is and how complicated it is. Um, So I appreciate you being flexible and also showing up for this project. I'm, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So... As you, I think, may know, I tend to start um, the interviews with a question about some of your earliest memories of either what it felt like or meant to be in a body or messages that you remember. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about this a lot (laughs) (laughs) because I know um, the question is there. And there must, of course, there were earlier messages and I in some ways have earlier memories, but what comes to mind immediately is my experiences of being diagnosed with bone cancer when I was 11 mm-hmm. and and then two years later at 13 when my left leg was amputated above the knee after chemotherapy and radiotherapy didn't work and amputation was the, was for me the cure for that cancer. And you know, I, I sometimes think about that time in my life, there was ways that having cancer, you know, on the verge of adolescence, I think made it just kind of Mm -hmm. roped into all the weirdness and of that time anyway. So that Mm. in some ways I was already, you know, changing and becoming aware of myself and that this just felt like an exaggerated adolescence. But on the other hand, it made that time of kind of burgeoning self-awareness, really complicated and scary. (laughs) And a lot of my experiences, and this is true of, you know, of the medical system for people at all ages, but certainly because I was a kid and not making the choices directly for my care, that I felt really like I had no say about my body, you know, um, Mm. the way doctors just come in and talk about you in the third person and examine you and poke you. And I was so self-conscious and so uncomfortable so much of the time. And then also in pain and, you know, starting treatment and losing my hair and becoming so visibly different from all of my peers. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And there was a way I had gone to a school that was a very close knit community. It was a Waldorf school in Edmonton, Alberta. And, and I'd known the kids in my class, you know, we'd, we'd been together since kindergarten. So that I had kind of a community in a way that they were very accepting of me, but at the same time, they were other kids <laughs> who mm-hmm. were curious and going to say things. And, um, and so a lot of, when I think of my first memories of being in a body, I think of being in a body with cancer and that this thing had gone wrong and it was very serious and there was nothing I could do about it. And I had to kind of undergo and endure these treatments that were awful and there was nothing I could do about it. And, and then when my leg was amputated at 13, and this is, you know, an age when kids are becoming more independent and doing things Mm -hmm. on their own and getting to go out. And, and I suddenly could, I couldn't do any of that. I became in the short term, very dependent, you know, certainly as I adjusted and had to learn to walk again and, you know, lots of pain management. And I, I, after my surgery, just started sleeping in my mom's bed with her because of pain and because of just needing comfort Mm -hmm. (laughs) and which was fine. It was so normal. Thank goodness I could do that, you know, but really different from the transitions that other 13 year olds were going through, I think. Mm -hmm. And so my memories are feeling really on the outside of myself and really on the outside of my peer group. And, and so I feel kind of a grief and a compassion for those, for those memories. And when, what's so powerful about this question and recalling like, okay, what are the messages or what comes to mind? And it was like, this thud came to mind and I thought, wow, okay, Mm -hmm. I'm carrying that story right now that when I think of being in this body, it's like, whoomp. It's not mm. yours and it's sick. And I'm like, wow, okay, mm. that's, let's, let's work with that. <laughs> but, but, but that's, that's what was there. I mean, there was times in there, what also comes to mind um, during that period before my leg was amputated, when the chemotherapy seemed to be working and I had been told by the doctors that I could, could run and walk and be active again. I had first, when I first got the diagnosis, they, I needed to use a wheelchair and be very careful because of, um, where the tumor was situated that it could make the bone fragile. And so I was being careful, you know, to avoid a break or, um, but then the tumor had shrank enough that they said, okay, you can now, you know, you don't no restrictions. And we'd gone on a school camping trip to this place, Moline Canyon in the Rocky mountains. And it's so beautiful there. And it was a couple of days after being told I could run again. And I'd waited until that moment when we kind of stepped into the ravine and I just bolted down this path, you know, mm. to a creek in the mountains surrounded by trees and got up to like an edge and just felt exhilarated. And, and so that memory comes to mind too, which when I, you know, sat with these memories and kind of connecting dots, I felt grateful. I was like, oh, there was also some joy and some empowerment and, and moments of feeling good in myself again. And there would be a lot of push and pull with that through the surgeries and treatments and stuff. But those are some of the, the mm-hmm. stories that come to mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm kind of hooking into this partly because of my not similar, but somewhat adjacent experience of, of sort of being diagnosed at age 14 with a chronic illness and, and that kind of very special (laughs) developmental time of feeling super self-conscious and, and already not 
you know, kind of in control of what's happening with your body. And so it's, it's in part, this might just be kind of a question led by, by my own, uh, through my own experience. But I guess I was really struck when you said, you know, it, my body was not mine and there's something wrong or mm-hmm. how much, I mean, I think that those narratives are attached to bodies all the time, but I wonder what it was like specifically maybe for you at that point in your adolescence to kind of internalize that message. And if, if there's anything that you think you probably, you know, like did or how you reacted later in your life to kind of reclaim some of that power or bodily autonomy, however messy that might've been. Yeah. And slow. That's been a slow mm. process. You know, I don't even know if in my 20s I was starting to... I, I can now see the impact of that message in like the really early relationships I was having. Mm. Um, you know, and very often feeling like if I didn't like something... I, I just had to go with it or even like in work environments, like it, it impacted mm-hmm. how I would speak up or not speak up most often, especially around like something that was maybe uncomfortable or I just didn't want. Mm-hmm. I really had just um, taken on that. I, I don't have a say. Um, and I, and I, not that I just don't, and not even that I don't have a say, like a helplessness. Like I had been taught a kind of mm-hmm. helplessness, And so it took time to realize (laughs) that took a long time. And especially even in, in navigating the medical system, which, you know, as someone with disability and as an amputee, I just continue to do all the time Mm -hmm. um, and other health issues down the road, or even just my, uh, like being pregnant and all kinds of things where I had to learn and really practice saying, well, what are my options? <laughs> what are yeah. my choices here? I want to make a choice. I remember with my my prosthetic leg, for a long time, I kept getting the same kind of knee. Um, it's called an Autobox 3R60. Worked totally fine. It had like four in a row. They last maybe three to four years or something. And I, I very grateful and indebted to a physiotherapist I had in Vancouver because she was like, well, have you ever tried any other knees? And I had just gone for kind of some you know, I developed some bad habits and was getting some physio and, and I was like, are there other knees? <laughs> and she said, yeah, there's a lot you can choose from. And I had no idea. And then even with learning about the the medical system, at least here in Canada, I had no idea that my prosthetic clinic was, you know, actually receiving probably a cut of always selling the same kind of product. Right. <laughs> I just didn't know about that. And I think because I kind of grew up in the medical system, I hadn't thought to question it. And I hadn't thought to sort of research or, or push back on, on what I was being offered. And maybe because in some ways, like the way things are paid for here, I didn't have to kind of consider those choices. Like how is this mm-hmm. financially different, even though prosthetics fall under like a different part of our healthcare than our, our other public healthcare. And so it was really her that encouraged me to say, why don't you go back <laughs> and ask what else there is, you know, yeah. like they, 
they're sticking with, with what's easiest for them and what they want to do, but you might actually like something else. And she also really pushed me to ask for like the, the forms that they fill out and submit on my behalf to be reimbursed for things and to look at what they're billing for and, and to really educate myself on the process. And I'm so, I'm so glad she did because I went back (laughs) and said, Hey, turns out I heard there's other knees and I want to try them. And what do those look like? And what are you, you know, putting on these forms when I just sign on the line, because I just thought it's just paperwork. And so in that space, it, she was really instrumental. And that was in my, you know, early thirties that it was the first time that I was realizing like, oh, I can just ask and there's options here and I can decide. And as far as other places where that messaging impacted me and that's ongoing work. <laughs> it's ongoing mm-hmm. work, learning how to notice when I'm feeling that way, when that, and it's such almost a wordless feeling of, mm. I don't have a say. And, and sometimes it's in small things like a, you know, a meeting at work, or sometimes it's something really important in a, a, a friendship or, you know, that's a boundary being crossed. Like there's a degree of, of, <laughs> of importance or severity, but I I feel it and I'm learning how to catch it and then have like a conversation with myself and tell myself, you know, you have a say, you, you know, you have agency, you know how to do this. These are all the things you've done before. And Mm -hmm. just really, you know, depending on, on kind of the intensity of that feeling, go through though, that bit of self-talk with myself and try and slow it down and, and because there's a lot of anxiety that can come with that. Mm-hmm. I feel a lot of anxiety with it. And so I'm learning, gosh, I'm learning. And, and that I think it's messy. This is the messy part sure. <laughs> of just yeah. trying to like uh, speak up and practice and learn and remember what it feels like to speak up so that maybe it gets a little easier or, mm-hmm. you know, one day that's my automatic response, you know. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the the things I have to tell myself is like, okay, you're in your forties. You've done this. <laughs> like you can yeah. handle it because of course the feeling is that kid in the hospital. Right. And I have to bring myself into this moment and to remind myself that I have the tools and, and that most of these situations are not dangerous. And the worst yes. thing that can happen most of the time is that I, you know, might make someone mad, you know, and that the stakes are not as high as they feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I think that that is, is the messiness of kind of unlearning these, it really feels like they're, they're messages and they're messages that are kind of inscribed in our bodies, right? You know, I mean, just thinking about you as quite early on in your life, being a person who was living with a disability Mm -hmm. and how much the rela- I mean, I'd love to hear what you think about, th- about this, but like how much the relationship between living as someone with a disability impacts how we are received when we do, you know, have a voice, right? Or express a need or an intuition or a preference, whether it be in the medical context or in, you know, other like socially, social environments. And I know there's a, you know, there's tremendous literature and work that, you know, 
disability justice writers and advocates have 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 generated so much interesting discussion about this. But yeah, I just wonder how that plays out for you. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, this is what I'm learning now and kind of can look back and untangle a little is that I went from being um, a child in the system and not being granted, you know, agency um, and then being a disabled person and um, the ways that we are not granted agency and that we're, you know, all the garbage that goes along with disability of not being considered human, really, the ways that we're dehumanized and the yes. ways that our our choices and our um, awareness is is minimized. And I think I, I didn't. I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of that for so long. I'm so grateful to the writers and thinkers and activists that I finally found. I wish that at 20, you know, you know, there was this like when I when I aged out of pediatric care into, you know, adult, the adult mm-hmm. team, the other, you know, wing of the hospital or whatever. And there was this conversation that the doctors had with me, like, you know, you're 18 here's some things you need to know. Here's some long-term effects of the chemotherapy you had to watch out for. Like, this is what your care will look like moving forward. Kind of, there was this like handover that on one hand was actually way more information than I was ready for. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. on the other, I wish that in that moment, um, in the sort of, you know, whatever brochures I was handed, that there had been like, and here are you know, the books you'll want to read that are going to inspire you and the community you're going to find mm. um, and the places you might want to look. You know, I'm looking on my desk and I just for a project was rereading um, Brilliant Imperfection by Eli Clare. And I just got mm-hmm. care work from the hospital. I mean, from the library. And like, you know, there's there's more and more work now. But of, of course, there would have been something then. <laughs> I, and I wish that I'd been that I'd found that community sooner that line of thinking that yes. <laughs> the disability justice framework that would have given me so much so much sooner um mm. as far as as you know s- celebrating or you know the difference in my body or just accepting it um you know anything other than hating it <laughs> because mm-hmm. there's so much around us that hates it Right, um, hating and compensating and... Yeah, and that mm-hmm. this, I'm, I am inherently a burden because yes. that's mm-hmm. what we're told, disability and illness is a burden. And so to to encounter all the people who are saying, no, it's not, <laughs> no, you're not, mm-hmm. um, would have been incredible. Um, and I hope, I you know, maybe that's something, I, I get asked to talk to, you know, kids with cancer and stuff like that. And like, I try mm-hmm. to like, give them that and because of course there is difficulty and of course there's challenges but I I try more so to talk about the ways it can be empowering and um or just the ways you can feel empowered like that that you don't have to default to to feeling shame or you know and at the same time that there's such an ongoing battle with that because to to feel empowered in disability is to every day fight back I don't even remember the question now, Asha. Where was oh, <laughs> <fine>. like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, it's it's something that only really recently I've been learning more about. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was a book 
by Kaylee Trace, who is a, she used to write a blog called The Fucking Facts. She's a sex therapist now. Um, and she, her, the book is called uh, um, Hot, Wet and Shaking, How I Learned to Talk About Sex. And I can't, I'd like saw her on Twitter or something. I love it. It's a small, brief memoir, you know, stories from her life. And it was through her book that I first heard about Eli Clare. And that was my, you know, kind huh? of first of the, of the kind of, you know, OG disability <laughs> justice workers. Like that was my introduction, thank goodness, to Kaylee that I found found her book. And it was her book that was the first time I had ever considered loving my disability or loving this part of me or actively liking it. She talks about, you know, being so kind of thrilled with herself for figuring out how to like carry things in her teeth when she crawls on the floor to admiring this, the bowed shape of her legs and, mm-hmm. and, and just being kind of sensual about uh, the way she talked about her body. And I was, it blew my mind mm. and it, it just like opened. I was like, Oh, I could, I could think of myself that way or this part of myself. And then it, this was also kind of the dawn of not dawn, but like the, the, the spread of Instagram and finally finding some people on there. Mama Cax, who was, is an amputee who also just like changed how I thought about how I could look that, mm. that I, you know, just, I could even use this part of me, you know, the, as a, as an, like an aesthetic, as like a choice around my, how, you know, my accessories and how I look and just find, just meeting those people and finding those people who were already doing that and, and um, starting to figure out how I wanted to do that is very recent. You know, it's been mm-hmm. this year will be 30 years since my leg was amputated, but it's really been in the last five to maybe 10 where I've started to have an awareness around disability justice and activism, an awareness around how I've been impacted by that mm-hmm. and what some of the options are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nice to hear you found that. And it also, I think is an important, and you, you certainly, you know, I'm, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about, about your, your book and how, you know, just thinking about all of the chapters that we haven't discussed yet that are, that kind of, you know, preceded this realization or this, this, mm. this learning about um, maybe a more empowering and connected way of relating to your body, but that it's understandable also that so much, so much grief and messiness, as you mm. said, and, and, and difficulty kind of came came your way or you know you Mm -hmm. lived through in and didn't have access to this kind of perspective I think that seems also significant to talk about is like when we experience certain forms of you know bodily trauma it's it, it feels important to kind of talk about the moments that we endured that that we didn't have a framework, like we didn't have a great therapist or we didn't have this amazing book or memoir to reference. And we, we felt, you know, kind of adrift or alone in yes. some ways. And, and so I think it's also important for us to kind of give some space to, to talk about what that felt like and how that, you know, wherever you want to go with that. I mean, there's, there's a lot there, but what it felt like and how it impacted you to, to not have access to these kind of more empowering frameworks. Yes. 
Yes. And, and, and you're right. Such a, a big part and in a way that was uh, concurrent and also fed my, my helplessness <laughs> was grief and was, um, experiences, the experiences of losing my two sons. And so my book is called how to lose everything. And, and each chapter kind of focuses on a different loss. And there's a chapter about cancer and a chapter about my leg being amputated and, and a little bit about uh, a kind of turning point with my disability. And then also these chapters about my, my sons. And so, oh man, absolutely. The way that those moments that we don't have access for all the reasons, right. And for a number of years in the same time frame that I'm, you know, talking about, I mean, now, um, almost 15 years since my first son died, but that I, you know, not only didn't have access, but didn't have capacity. And mm. so that I was, you know, in grief and struggling, um, and, and also have, you know, all these other layers of helplessness and questioning, um, and just the aftermath, um, first of my first son's death, he died during labor. And then a couple of years after that, my second son who was born with, uh, hypoplastic left heart syndrome and, and lived a, a short and beautiful and difficult life, um, and died when he was 14 months old. And so, yeah, the, the, the finding, you know, these writers and finding these ideas recently is also because I was pretty busy <laughs> with mm -hmm. other stuff, with too much stuff, so much. And I, but I think in some of the work that I've done around just the grief work and, and for my sons and in that grief, of course, it tied into the messages I had from being a kid, because even the ways that I would feel overwhelmed or like I couldn't say something or do something um, around the experiences with my sons were also coming from that informed place of like, but I don't have a say. Um, and so that impacted, you know, you know, those, uh, those times in my life mm -hmm. as well. And I think sometimes, you know, in some conversations I, I talk about grief and disability, like there's some parallels <laughs> or some, uh, some similarities um, because it is also this experience that's full of contradiction, you know, that I can embrace and um, that I, you know, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish my grief away, but of course on some days I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> and in the ways that with disability that we need, you know, we need accommodation when we're, especially in the early stages of, of grief and the ways that I, you know, will think about my day. There's, you know, how I, like if I'm going, you know, to an appointment and I know it's upstairs and I think, okay, then that's all I can do there and I'll make sure I have time to rest or whatever. The same ways with with grief for me, I think I have to think about what can I do and what's possible. And mm. if I go to that party or watch that movie, like, <laughs> how is that going to touch on this? You know, like, right. I think it, mm -hmm. it, it changed me and it needed space and time and care in the way that my, my physical disability does, which, I mean, no surprise, but um, I think because it's less tangible or because it's not physical, there's, you know, a lot of people who, aren't able to sort of see how, yeah. how grief needs, needs, it's an access need, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah. And so this, this kind of time of being able to read the books and find some of those stories is, 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 yeah, was only really available to me because of kind of enough time passing and, um, as far as my losses and then being able and ready to start to think, okay, here I am in this body with one leg with pain, you know, having birthed a couple kids Mm -hmm. with so much heartache, with so much longing, with so much sorrow. Now what? Um, Mm. and, uh, and then going, okay, well, who else, who else is out there? (laughs) What, what, what can I find, um, Mm -hmm. to connect to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So speaking of contradictions, I'm curious. I think that you, in some ways you embody or inhabit so much, you know, quote unquote multiplicity, right? In, in terms of your, your identity, your, your kind of I'm thinking also of, you know, sort of what you've inherited intergenerationally from your different family origins, your various family origins. And, and I guess there's all that in the mix and all the other contradictions we talked about, but there's also queerness. And I'm just curious if, if part of, part of how you relate to your disability or how you've, how you've begun to relate to the, the kind of contradictions in grief work or the contradictions within living with a a disabled body, living within a disabled body, if like how that informs how you think about your queerness. Mm. Yeah. What I, I, I see, sometimes I look at it as the ways that I, I'm straddling a lot of worlds. I feel like I'm in two places in a lot of ways with my disability, you know, I, I can walk, I can, I I can pass for non-disabled if I stand still, (laughs) um, (laughs) and put on some pants, you know, but I can. And, and there are situations where I've done that purposefully, uh, or years that I spent trying to hide it and was, you know, successful to degrees. And so I kind of sometimes straddle that world, certainly how I can perceived, um, or, or privileges that I, I have. And I'm an indigenous person. Um, I'm mixed, uh, Cree and, uh, settler Scandinavian and I'm white presenting, I'm white. And so there's also these ways that I, you know, I'm read as white because I am, (laughs) but I am Cree and that's my community and my family and my part of a huge part of my culture and my, um, you know, cultural and spiritual practices. And so in, in non-native world, you know, that can be tokenized or labeled as a native person in the indigenous world where I feel at home or native communities, but I'm also, you know, because I'm, I'm white, that there's sort of a a two world. I feel like I'm in two worlds there Mm -hmm. and then being queer so often feels like two worlds. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, because of how I present, you know, being cisgender, um, like certainly straight people read me as straight a lot of the time and the ways that I'm read or, or, or received can feel like being in two spaces, the things that I might have to explain or disclose, Mm. or it can feel like disclosure, right? Being, Mm. you know, when someone makes an assumption and you actually know I'm queer (laughs) that moment. And, and so there's, I think there's ways that I have played with that being queer 
um, there's ways that I feel very at home kind of in that, like, uh, this duality or, or mm-hmm. being one thing, looking like another thing or like being able to pass or like for sometimes for my own safety, not, you know, not disclosing being queer. Sure. Um, and that I, I can, again, I can, I can, I, you know, can, I can in certain moments be a non-disabled white straight person because I can be read that way. I can present that way mm-hmm. very easily or I do present that way. Mm. So it's interesting, right? Yeah, again, it feels like a bit of that messiness, but at the same time, because it's it's who I am and all I know, it's like, well, obviously I'm queer, <laughs> obviously I'm disabled, obviously I'm Cree, like because it's right. It's you know, obviously I'm a grieving mother. Like it feels like those things are so clear and so present, and I can't not see the world in any other way. That it can surprise me if someone looks at me and doesn't doesn't know or doesn't read those things mm-hmm. um and you know at the same time you know I feel also so lucky I mean because of the overlap of disability and and in queer communities like the ways that I can feel at home <laughs> and feel mm. safe and feel belonging in in queer community as a disabled person or as an indigenous person that I sometimes don't feel in disabled or indigenous spaces. Do you know what I mean? Like, because there is such a mix, this beautiful, (laughs) crazy mix of bodies and identities in queer spaces. And that, that there's a way that I can relax there, that there's sort of a way of, of, of ease. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's sort of like, I mean, that's sort of what I imagined I might hear when I asked you about that, the, the ease part, you know, that yeah. there is kind of a spaciousness for complexity and messiness and differently, you know, differently abled and complex bodies and bodily experiences and body desires within, within queer spaces. And also, you know, I think I also want to leave room or leave you room to to maybe speak to the ways that, you know, queer community has been or can be really ableist um, Mm. and, you know, non-inclusive to Indigenous people or, you know, I I don't know if those are experiences you've also had. Yeah, that's true. I've been here, I'm like thinking of all the moments that's been so welcoming and beautiful. I'm like, oh no, you're right. (laughs) You're right. It can be, I mean, gosh, yeah, there's also... It can be like anything else, right? It can be Any like other- anything else. Yeah. Yep. Particularly when we're thinking now about the sort of mainstream, like corporate-sponsored pride parades or whatever. Totally, mm-hmm. totally not inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think... I think I've mostly avoided being directly impacted, um, although I, I witnessed that and see that. But in in this kind of like overlapping and finding different spaces where I either, you know, will feel great belonging or almost never feel like I belong. It kind of depends on the day Mm -hmm. Um, that I've, I've mostly been able to choose or find places where I'm not being subjected to that directly. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, ableism is, it's everywhere. (laughs) I'm sometimes, I shouldn't be surprised, but it is, I'm staggering Mm. how ever present and constant 
it is mm-hmm. um, in each of those it's each of those spaces yeah yeah is there would you be willing to share like some of the I don't know practices or resources or things that have that help you to navigate kind of help your body to navigate sort of on a daily basis the you know constant confrontation with ableism and and other challenges that you face I know you are a parent and Mm. it's hard being a parent it's hard being a grieving parent it's hard being you know it's it there are a lot of challenges in in your life and I just wonder what what kind of sustains you Mm. yeah and it's been interesting you know after my uh after my son's died I did have a third child my daughter Sona she's three and a half and I knew in in trying to have her and in hoping for you know a a child and seeing how that would go that I would be opening myself up to grief and memory and triggers galore and that I you know I had to be ready for that I I felt like once I decided to try to have her that I was as ready as I, I could be to say okay right this is if this goes as well as possible I'm still gonna have all kinds of stuff come up and I was thinking about my sons I was thinking about grief and then what I hadn't anticipated was how much my disability would um play into parenting um mm. the ways this the physical challenges of of parenting you know there's a lot of bending over and picking things up (laughs) including you know her um and just the you know it's it's so physical it's a very physically demanding it's very physically demanding work you know parenting you're just very busy and moving around so much and and I what that would be like and then being around other kids all the time which is not something I'd ever really done since I was a kid um Mm -hmm. and being a visibly disabled person around other kids all the time and kids who, you know, have questions and have different skill levels or awareness of disability and their parents who have different <laughs> awareness and skill levels is a nice mm-hmm. way of putting it. And this is, I mean, I will come back to what sustains me. There is what I've found in West Toronto, which people, some people talk about as this kind of safe bubble of, well, actually there's a lot of queer families in this neighborhood. Um, but I, there's a thing that I experience so often where I overhear, you know, parents answering their kids' questions about my leg. And um, a lot of parents say, why don't you go ask her? And I think that's, that's supposed to be like a, 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 a it's like, it's, I don't know what it is in parenting. <laughs> this is the thing that we can just like, go <laughs> ask. Um, and I see that they're trying to support that kid to be curious and, and, and that, you know, it's okay. This is an okay thing to talk about, but I feel like it's misdirected because I don't always want to be asked often because I'm there with my kid just playing or whatever at the playground. And, and there's something about disability that people feel entitled to, you know, I'll make the comparison. Like I'm a pretty short person. And I feel like if someone said like to the, if a kid said, you know, why is she so short? Like, so no one would come up to me and say, you're pretty short. Like, were your parents short? Why are you short? Like the, no one would say that most, okay. Almost no one, mostly mm-hmm. we know not to talk about that. Um, but disability is this thing that people feel entitled to, 
talk about. And I mean, we're asking about someone's medical history, potentially, you know, traumatic experiences and just like something that is none of anyone's business. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. Um, and I hear it so much that parents, you know, trying to say like, oh yeah, no, I don't know. I, you know, there's lots of reasons she could have lost her leg. And then they say, why don't you go ask her what I want to be like, why don't you just leave it at that? Why don't you just say, I don't know. We don't know why. Mm-hmm. Does it matter? No. <laughs> like yeah. there's other ways we could learn about amputees or, or disability and without going and talking to this, this stranger. Yeah. So what sustains me, gosh, what sustains me in navigating all of that um man the opportunities to vent about it there's a (laughs) right a couple friends who I can call or text and just go fuck for fuck's sake um the opportunities to talk about it like I try to you know on you know social media or in some of the writing I do talk about how that feels um and And if it's not, if I have, you know, so there's those like overt experiences of like, I hate that, please don't do that. Mm -hmm. Or there's just a day where, you know, you kind of sense it or feel it. (laughs) And I mean, what sustains me is my family, my partner, my daughter. I mean, what's so magical about I mean, I think little kids, I think so far from what I know (laughs) is like how immediately present they are. You know, there's no choice to be solidly in the present with them. And so, you know, I've practiced over time to tune out those stares or ignore those questions. And um, being with a toddler, like can really help me just zoom right Mm. into like, okay, what were we doing? What were we playing? Mm -hmm. You know, this, I I love this. I love her. I love being with her. That feels good. Mm. And then other self care practices of, of what can feel good. What can bring me back to being in my body? How can I remind myself that, you know, I love my body, but it's not always easy. You know, I, I think sometimes what can be tiring because, because I try to publicly announce and practice disabled is not a bad word and disabled bodies are beautiful and, you know, kind of do what I can to counteract some of the messaging out there. But that doesn't mean that every day I feel that way. And doesn't mean that every day I I love being disabled. But the minute you kind of hint at that, this like non-disabled world is like, I knew it. I knew being disabled sucks. I'm like, no, that's that's not what I mean. Um, But there's this like pressure of trying to uphold that. I feel a pressure Mm -hmm. of trying to uphold like my politics with just my daily feelings. And that, that's, that can be tiring. And so the ways that I will try and like sustain is just come back to like giving myself compassion for that exhaustion, letting myself off the hook if I don't feel like being super politically active about it and wanting to, if I want to have a day where I don't like it and I want to whine about it. Um, yeah. But, but mostly trying to come down to what are the things that, that feel good? You know, is it like some aromatherapy that's going to help me come back to this moment? Is it playing with my kid? Is it going to be eating something? Is it going to be just resting for five minutes? And and practicing tuning, just tuning out the world, you know, yeah. and and reminding myself of what I know to be true, you know, that I'm, you know, my worth in my body in this moment. Yeah. I'm giving a lot of long answers to these questions. <laughs> 
No, but the, just because there are, you know, I mean, as a psychotherapist, I'm, you know, I'm very aware of how many, how many discourses are, you know, so limiting when it comes to what self-care actually means. And, um, so prescriptive, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. And that, you know, just hearing you talk about, um, kind of even these internal dialogues around, I should, I should be, my body should be feeling this way, or I should be, um, up for this. I should be able to take on the world and, you know, it, there are days and lots of moments when just life and our bodies feel so much more messy than that. And sometimes a bath is not enough or, (laughs) you know, a phone call with a friend doesn't work, but so I think that the, you know, it's, it's a, it's a complicated question with, with a complicated set of answers that are probably all like ever evolving as your, your role and life changes. And I've, yeah. Not, yeah, it's, yeah, it's so, you're so right. And thank you for saying that because even, even that is like, oh, right. I need to, like, it's so helpful to remind myself that it is messy and it is evolving and I don't have to, you know, there isn't a, a short answer, full stop. Um, and I have been feeling in recent years more and more angry <laughs> I, um, mm. I, about, about trying to uphold a certain, you know, trying to, trying to maintain like a public persona around being disabled or, or just reaching my limitations. Like I, Mm. I, you know, if I do something and I end up feeling pain before I thought I would, before I'd planned to already be home and just feeling so mad. (laughs) The last few years have been like so mad and realizing kind of when I can follow that anger, not always, but often I follow that and it leads me to a a grief and that, you Mm. know, might be because of what I'm being told around me, what I should be able to do, or it might be just, I mean, wherever it's coming from, I find like I'm, I, I, you know, I'll trip and fall and feel so mad about it in a way that I didn't used to. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I think some, I think I am actually sometimes really bummed about this. Like, (laughs) yeah. And I've, I've been trying so hard not to be because I don't want the like, see, I knew it sucked to be disabled or, mm-hmm. or because of when I was on chemo and was told, you know, you're such a brave kid. You're such a strong kid. Like, I'm like, fuck, I'm a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I didn't choose this. I don't yeah. think it's brave. <laughs> I didn't like actively sign up to, you know, take this on. Um, and so it's, it kind of has finally caught up with me to be angry and be sad and so that, that then, and then what then sustains me in those moments is the tools that I'm learning of, of not fighting it. Yeah. Like, yeah. okay, I'm mad. I'm so mad. And then, and that, then that conversation with myself was like, okay, what am I mad about? Well, I'm really fucking mad about this. I'm really mad about the sidewalk that tripped me. I'm really mad about my prosthesis. That's not fitting me, mm-hmm. you know, like, and just letting myself. Letting it. Yeah. Let, yeah. Because I think for a long time I, I didn't let it. Mm-hmm. Or I, you know, like, or just letting, like, once I can list those things and be angry, and if that starts to shift into grief, and then letting the grief be there, and letting, you know, trying to find words for that, mm-hmm. and um, and that's sustaining. I mean, I agree. This, like, even the term self care, like, always kind of makes me cringe because it's become this like 
trademarked bubble bath or whatever. Mm-hmm. But for me, it, it, it has to be and is like, okay, I, I want to actually feel these things now. That is what is going to sustain me. That's what's going to, mm. you know, uh, not deplete me. I mean, the opposite yes. is, is depletion. Yes. If I can't allow myself these things, I'm actually really, um, depleting my resources. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like that. Yeah. I mean, I can, that part I can really relate to around like performing, um, certain roles or performing positivity, performing capability, performing, you know, like resilience or something can often, you know, privately or internally really lead to a lot of, you know, psychic and emotional depletion and that attending to your grief is, is a form of care, you know, like recognizing it and attending to it is really, is really a form of care. And yeah. So I appreciate you kind of pointing that out. Um, I want to just, uh, wrap up by first thanking you for being on the podcast. And also, you know, I want the listeners to be able to hear a little bit about there's, we, we barely touched on so many of the roles that you take on and so many of the things you produce and put out in the world. So maybe you can let folks know how they can find out about you and what you have written and created and all of that. Sure. Yeah. Well, com is, is the best place to kind of connect dots, uh, to the various things that I make and, and share. Um, my music is on Spotify and Apple music and all the places. My, mm-hmm. uh, seventh album came out last spring. It's called safe Harbor. It came out on Coke's records, which is a really wonderful label that supports, um, marginalized artists. It was founded by, uh, Ray Spoon here in Canada, who's remarkable. And my book, How to Lose Everything, came out uh, in Canada in September, but in the States just uh, last week. And yeah. so this is my memoir where I, I share my different experiences of loss. And um, it's available in all the book places, your local bookstore, your independent bookstore, Amazon, um, yep libraries and the audiobook isn't out yet but I recorded it so that should be available soon as oh, well cool. yeah um and then you know Instagram is and and the social media places Instagram is kind of my favorite like I'm on Twitter and everywhere else but that's that's the place that I I most like to connect and and share things so yeah music and books that's that's the bulk of of what I make and mm-hmm. um and I, I people will find it Yes, I certainly hope people do. And thank you for for joining me. Thank you. 